Previously on Flying the Line, we looked at how Braniff pilots faced a crisis that no other U.S. pilot group had ever confronted. This podcast is brought to you by the Airline Pilots Association. ALPA supports its pilots through a variety of resources, including Pilot Peer Support, or PPS. PPS is a support network that connects ALPA members with trained pilot peers to talk about any personal or professional problems you may be experiencing. For contact information and to learn more, visit alpha.org pps. Welcome to the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association, a bridge from the book Flying the Line, Volume 2, by George E. Hopkins. Chapter 6. O'Donnell's Dilemmas, The Patco Strike, Braniff, and Furloughs, Part 1. In 1970, at the final board of directors meeting Charlie Ruby would preside over as ALPA's president, he made a farewell address that was oddly predictive of his successor's downfall a dozen years later. After eight embattled years, Ruby could have selected from a wide array of troublesome issues as the focus of his remarks. He chose to talk about pilot furloughs. Furloughs, he told the BOD, created a crisis of sympathy for the pilots losing their jobs and had the potential to threaten ALPA's financial stability. Ruby, whose professional career began in the days of seasonal layoffs, saw furloughs as a normal but temporary aspect of the professional pilot's experience. In fact, he expressed great sympathy for managers who had to make furlough decisions, and he spoke out strongly for cooperation within the airline industry on such matters. Ruby's expression of a managerial mentality, while not totally lacking concern for the plight of furloughed pilots and their families, seemed a bit old-fashioned. But signs of change were appearing. During the expansion of the 1960s, a new generation of airline pilots had come to see furloughs as anything but routine. Consequently, Ruby's warning that ALPA's finances would suffer if the delegates tried to do too much to help furloughed members stirred mutterings among some delegates. Talk of fiscal restraint was all well and good for Ruby, as he rode off into the sunset with a comfortable retirement package but the larger question remained unanswered. What was ALPA's responsibility to the members of the profession who lost their jobs? Of all the headaches O'Donnell would inherit from Ruby, furloughs were the most debilitating. The problem with furloughs wasn't just the lost dues revenue to ALPA, as some cynics suggested. The problem went much deeper, to the very core of the professional airline pilot's self-image, as a stable, respected, and prosperous member of the upper middle class. Take that away, and ALPA would certainly become a target for blame and criticism, as would whoever happened to be ALPA's president at the time. The furlough issue would trouble ALPA well into the post-deregulation era, gaining new significance as the great merger crisis of the 1980s unfolded. But in 1970, at a time when questions of fragmentation policy and scope clauses were mostly abstractions, the furlough issue seems, in retrospect, relatively trivial, but it struck observers at the time as quite serious. While ALPA membership had doubled from 14,000 in 1965 
to 28,000 in 1970, the number of pilots on furlough by then had increased tenfold to 880. Even in an era when being furloughed was looked upon as a routine part of the airline business, these numbers alarmed many pilots. Imagine the crisis O'Donnell faced in 1982, when the number of airline pilots out of work jumped by more than 2,000 from the Braniff collapse alone. And these pilots weren't just furloughed, they were part of a mass termination unlike anything in ALPA's history. What did ALPA owe the Braniff pilots, and how could O'Donnell dodge this bullet? As we have seen, O'Donnell had coped successfully with political crises before. If he chose to run for an unprecedented fourth term as ALPA's president in 1982, he would, as an incumbent, have enormous resources to counterbalance the negative baggage he'd accumulated over the previous 12 years. Coming less than a year before O'Donnell would have to face re-election, he knew that the Braniff bankruptcy would be a political problem, but he did not think it an insurmountable one. At the time of Braniff's bankruptcy, he had not yet formally declared his candidacy, and he kept his intentions to himself. Part of the hostility Braniff's line pilots displayed toward O'Donnell stemmed from the fact that he kept a relatively low profile. This limited visibility caused more than one Braniff pilot to express the feeling that O'Donnell and Alpa were abandoning them to their fate. However, the association's financial support for the Braniff pilots was never in doubt. At the May 1982 executive board, the Braniff Pilot Group received an emergency grant of $50,000 to continue routine representational activities. Subsequently, the executive committee authorized nearly $500,000 to support the Braniff Pilots in its various activities, which included an 800-number hotline that kept the pilots informed of the latest developments. But the fate of Braniff's pilots was only one of several contentious issues nagging at O'Donnell. And with an election coming, minimizing their plight and distancing himself from it seemed like good politics. More to the point, O'Donnell believed Braniff would emerge from bankruptcy, resume operations, and the crisis would solve itself. Consequently, he saw no need to rush into unfamiliar terrain, to implement the kind of crash program of employment assistance many Braniff pilots were calling for was precisely the kind of thing Charlie Ruby had warned about, that things would pan out, at least temporarily, just the way O'Donnell predicted, earned him little credit among unemployed Braniff pilots at the time. When Hank Duffy assumed ALPA's presidency in January 1983, he would find a substantial file of letters from Braniff pilots asking for assistance. Many of these letters were rife with the personal tragedy of divorce, lost homes, and shattered lives. Unemployed Braniff pilots wanted many things from ALPA, among them strike benefits. These letters repeated a familiar refrain, loyal dues-paying members who had never asked for anything from ALPA needed help. What about a loan equal to the dues they had paid in over the years? But Braniff wasn't on strike, and ALPA's constitution and bylaws had no way to help them financially with loans. The Braniff pilots did have one legitimate complaint. Above all else, they wanted ALPA to somehow force the government into complying with the first right of hire provisions of the Airline Deregulation Act of 1978. 
while O'Donnell had indeed quietly supported the Braniff Group financially. To ordinary line pilots, this form of aid was almost invisible. What they really wanted was new jobs, which seemed to be their right under the law. Oddly, O'Donnell remained silent. The Reagan Revolution began with a crusade to get the government off the backs of the American people. To this end, President Reagan announced that he was canceling all unnecessary government regulations. The first right of hire regulations, issued by his predecessor, Jimmy Carter, under the terms of the Airline Deregulation Act of 1978, fell victim to the Reagan cancellations. First right of hire regulations spelled out the implementation procedures governing the Labor Protective Provisions, or LPPs, of the Airline Deregulation Act of 1978. Government intervention in situations like this typically applied to businesses over which the government had regulatory or oversight authority. These regulatory activities applied mostly to mergers, like the Allegheny Mohawk Union of 1972. The deregulation LPPs were new in that they required an existing airline to hire, on a preferential basis, pilots who had lost their jobs because of deregulation. The problem with this legislation was that it first required the president, through his administrative subordinates, to prove deregulation was the cause of the airline's bankruptcy, and then to issue a set of administrative guidelines implementing procedures for first right of hire. An airline was not obligated to hire pilots it didn't need under the 1978 Act, but any pilot who couldn't get a job within the 10-year limit that Congress imposed had the right to compensatory payments from the federal government. O'Donnell became very close to the new Republican administration. Had he pushed aggressively for implementation of the LPPs, his action probably would have alienated Reagan officials and almost certainly would have damaged his standing with them. So, out of personal ambition or a sincere belief that staying on the right side of the Reagan administration best served ALPA's interests, O'Donnell opted for a low-key approach. No one knew for sure what O'Donnell's motivation was, and in all fairness, we must remember that the LPPs that Braniff's pilots would need were not an issue until later. During the months leading up to the Braniff bankruptcy, only two relatively small airlines, Air New England and Airlift International, whose pilot groups totaled barely 100, would theoretically have benefited from the LPPs. But when Hank Duffy took over from O'Donnell in January 1983, the LPP regulations were still in administrative limbo. After nearly three years of delay, the Reagan administration finally succumbed to ALPA's pressure and published the LPP regulations. Fifteen airlines promptly sued to halt their implementation. In May 1984, a federal court further delayed implementation of the LPPs because the Airline Deregulation Act of 1978 contained a legislative veto designed to oversee and limit the president's administration of the law. The Supreme Court previously ruled that such limitations were unconstitutional, but Congress believed its LPP wording in Section 43 of the Deregulation Act would pass muster. This provision existed because congressional Democrats feared the adverse effect of deregulation on labor and distrusted the labor policies of the current Carter administration, 
not to mention a future Republican administrations. This attempt to protect labor from the effects of deregulation backfired, much to the dismay of airline pilots, who stood to benefit from it more than any other workers. But the original pro-labor intentions of Section 43 were clear. In the absence of Reagan's support for the LPPs, all ALPA could tell pilots who lost their jobs because of deregulation was to continue asking employers for special consideration under first right of hire provisions. Meanwhile, ALPA appealed the court decision and eventually prevailed, but not until 1987. However, it was a hollow triumph, since the statutory 10-year limit on the LPPs associated with the Deregulation Act of 1978 had run out. As for the compensation due to the pilots who lost their jobs because of deregulation, not one brand of pilot, or any other airline pilot for that matter, ever received a penny. The Department of Labor's long delay in issuing the regulations meant that it would be years before Congress could appropriate money for that purpose. By 1987, when the administrative and legal systems had finally finished with the LPPs, the federal budget was deeply in deficit and had no money to spare. In this financial environment, neither Congress nor the President showed interest in appropriating money to compensate airline pilots. Ironically, in several lawsuits brought by Braniff pilots, judges would later rule that Braniff had indeed failed because of deregulation. So the Braniff pilots were entitled to compensation under the LPPs, but no money was available to pay them. O'Donnell continued to play his political cards very close to the vest in early 1982, emphasizing his connections with political leaders. In fairness to him, the decision to soft-pedal the Braniff collapse was consistent and intellectually defensible. While many Braniff pilots ridiculed O'Donnell, an influential segment, particularly among the Braniff MEC, worked hard to counter their attacks. In any case, the direct political impact of the Braniff pilots at the BOD meeting in 1982 would be minimal, because owing to their unique situation, they were granted only observer status. This meant they were not permitted to vote. In addition, the fact that the Braniff pilots had high hopes of getting their airline back into the air further added to the tension. But their presence as observers was a visible reminder to every delegate that the unthinkable was now possible, that airline pilot furloughs might not be just temporary after all. Braniff would get a second chance at life, transitioning into new Braniff, or Braniff II, on March 1, 1984. This rebirth was largely the work of two retired Braniff pilots, Jack Morton and Glenn Shoup, plus one active pilot, Jack Murdoch. It would enjoy some success, but ultimately, in September 1989, the airline filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection and ceased operations in December. Next time on Flying the Line, we look at the far-reaching implications of an illegal strike by air traffic controllers. Thank you for listening. This has been Chapter 6, Part 1 of Flying the Line 2 by George E. Hopkins, copyright 2000. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. 
to listen and subscribe to more in this series, please check us out online at alpa.org or on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or other podcast platforms. Until next time, this is the Flying the Lion podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association International. Production copyright ALPA 2023. All rights reserved.